Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com or download the digital pour app to track them what's on tap. <clears throat> this week, we have Lion Distilling Company and all the way from St. Michael's, Maryland, Ben Lyon was nice enough to come visit us. Here we are. The co-founder and master distiller. Yep. <laughs> so um, first, like, you have quite a history of doing cool stuff. Don't if I if I remember it's correctly, really, that's a really kind way to, to open up. Yes, but like you've done um, <clears throat> you've done a lot of different things before right. you uh, you became a distillery founder and uh, it's, it's very true. And it's funny what, producer. What, what what parts of my I don't know I guess you know professional history people want to latch onto. But um, what I always like to open with and and sort of start with is um, kind of unique in the distilling world in that before all of this, I actually worked for a distillery. Um, which is rare. Which is totally rare. Um, I was a home brewer in college. Uh, you know, I've always been, obviously, a very enthusiastic drinker, um, which is certainly helpful you <laughs> know, in, this, in this line of work. Um, but, you know, right, at, right after college, I had some, some time to kill before I was starting my, you know, quote-unquote real job. And so I went and worked for Cisco Brewers and Triple Eight Distilling out on Nantucket. The intention was to uh, get some hands-on experience in the craft beer world because they were one of the first and, and sort of premier kind of New England breweries at the time and got out there and realized, um, whoa, they have this whole distilling thing going on and they're making uh, what is now regarded as one of the absolute best single malts in the world, um, a rum, which of course now for me is key, a, a gin, vodka, you know, and a couple other things. So it was a, it was a really um, interesting experience and in that I wasn't expecting to do that and it sort of led to this whole thing and you know because i sort of realized hey i'm never gonna have a better job than this sure <laughs> enough i never did so here's lion distilling company you know <laughs> but what, what were some of the other things you you've done you so i you were in radio a little bit yeah, right I, I had a you know radio show in college i was uh for a very brief time in new york i was a political talk show producer um i've been a political consultant um, spent a few years on Wall Street and have also been a been a lobbyist as well. Where so, are you originally from? Um, Hanover, New Hampshire. Okay. So New England. Yeah, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Was born in DC though, so not so my roots aren't aren't all that far, I guess. So are you one of those Patriots fans or are you uh, or do you, you know, just not even care about I, sports ball? Yeah, I mean sport, <laughs> yeah, sports ball, I love it. No. Uh, you know, growing up there. Um, you know, Jay Fiedler went to Dartmouth, and one of my buddy's dads was, you know, the quarterback coach at Dartmouth. So we were all like, you know, when he got drafted by the, by the Patriots, we were like, yeah, you know, Jay Fiedler, this is <laughs> awesome. And so I guess that kind of um, led to a little bit of, you know, fanaticism for a minute. But uh, the truth of the matter is I don't really care about sports ball that much. Uh, I mean, yeah. I grew up in Pittsburgh, so I'm <laughs> so, kind of for like, – I don't have a choice but to be a sports fan. You got to. And yeah. I'm also tired because – Stillers. Up, yeah, they were – that Penguins. game didn't end to like midnight, I think, almost. Right, uh, exactly. I hate uh, eight thirty games. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. But um, so you yeah, did so that not, for a I'm while. Not, I'm not a hardcore, you know, NFL fan or anything like that. So. And I believe there's something with boating. Yeah. So, so my my real heart and soul and passion is in um, cycling, skiing, and sailing. Um, and so, you know, pretty much almost every weekend, and you know, a lot of basically every Wednesday night. Uh, between April and November, um, I'm sailing. So, 
it's uh, it's nice. And so we're, and where the distillery is is very convenient because yeah, it works out St. Well. Michael's, Maryland is like the lovely little drinking town with the sailing problem. We're, uh, we're <laughs> right there on the Chesapeake Bay, so it's um, you know if you like sailing, it's sort of an amazing place to be. You know, I love sailing. Um, in fact, we did an episode from a boat. No and, kidding. Yeah, from awesome. uh, from a schooner. Yeah. And when we're done, you may want to ask uh, Graham about <laughs> about our experience of doing that because I have <laughs> no comment on that. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> and, Graham Obviously. may not have had as much fun as I had. <laughs> Is Graham prone to seasickness? I don't know if he's prone, but he's definitely had it. <laughs> All right. A little Dramamine, a couple swigs of rum, you know, and you're good to go. Yeah. So, so what kind of cycling do you do? Uh, I was actually growing up, I was a really serious mountain bike racer. Um, actually, got to the point where I was racing at the semi-pro level. And, uh, yeah, and then obviously, you know, at one point I, I ended up wrecking my knee and so sort of quit racing. But um, on the Eastern Shore, it's pretty flat and yeah. <laughs> not a lot of um, not a lot of trails. So I, I do a lot of road biking now. Um, and that's been kind of the evolution of the thing. But I used nice. to – I biked a lot more before I wrecked my knee yeah. um, and then didn't bike. And yeah. Gained a ton of weight because I kept eating like I was biking. <laughs> right, exactly. So I used to bike at least 100 miles a yep. week and – uh, what kind of bike do you ride? What, what uh, I've got, I've actually have six different bikes. So um, I've got a custom tsunami aluminum road bike. Um, I've got two mountain bikes. Um, another custom bike I built up for actually I, I did the Gap Trail from Pittsburgh to DC a couple of years ago with one of my buddies. Yeah, so. I plan on um, someday I'll do that. Just have it's my awesome. wife drive me up there, drop me off in Pittsburgh, and ride down. It is a great, great trip. I, um, the group of friends I ride with regularly. Yeah. Um, also have the same sort of drinking affinity um they did a good portion of it a few yeah. years ago and planned it out where there would be stops like, for drinking exactly. along the way little periodic safety meetings you know yeah and i yeah. also have well it's it's my um my uh, uh fat bike uh, has i have a holder nice. on one on the fork that's perfectly sized for a growler so excellent we can uh, we can bring alcohol and it's perfect. And it's flat, you know, yeah. because it's all former rail bed for most of the way. And yep. then you get to no, the I think, what, no and more than a 1% grade. Exactly. Constant the whole way. So you can just you fly. That's cool. It's really cool. So how long were you working um, at the other distillery till you decided, I need to do this for my own? Or were some of those other uh, jobs in it was, between It that? was almost a year. Okay. Almost a year. So you so. went straight from there to opening Lion? No. So okay. that was right out of college. Um then I went and had a real job as a political consultant, <laughs> and then, you know, did, did all the stuff. Made that, the money you know, to be able to. <laughs> in theory, yeah. And, uh, you know, had did all the things that sort of made me realize, wow, you know, the, the real, regular, normal working world is, is not all that much fun. And, and what I always tell everybody is I was never very good at having a boss anyway. So, <laughs> um, so not, I think. Uh, Cubicles, I think a lot TPS of us, reports you know, all yeah, suck. Right, TPS reports. <laughs> You know, Milton Wadhams and everybody, you know. Um, I think what a lot of us, you know, brewers, winemakers, distillers, and, and creative people and people who like, you know, making stuff, getting hands-on, all sort of share is that, um, you know, authority and rules and, you know, people telling you what to do. Or, you know, it's just runs counter to your very Yeah, there's very always being, some moron you know? so, telling you what to oh do. Oh, my God, right? You know, <laughs> so, um, but then I think, the double-edged sword there is when you do go out on your own and you do start your own business and you, you know, you start making stuff and selling it and 
you're that jerk now to someone. Well, and you have to be the (laughs) jerk to yourself because then in a way you're, you're almost more kind of stuck on the grind. You know what I mean? Because you, once you start, you, I mean, well, you can stop, but you know, but it's, it's almost more because it's more compelling. You're almost more driven in a way that, you know, that I didn't think you uh, ever would have expected. I certainly didn't. Um, which I guess is the wonderful thing about it, right? And uh, it's the whole entrepreneurship and, and creative drive and all that stuff. But now, when did Lion Distilling uh, open? You've, you've been open for quite some time now, haven't you? December 7th, 2013. Okay. So we're, right at, we're yeah, three days away from our four-year anniversary. So, so you definitely are, um, at this point, like the old men on the block. Right? Uh, which is so weird to me. Yeah, because... Um, um, so how how did you open so much sooner than everyone else? Or that's was kinda, it so the, that's kinda, we were a little ahead of the curve. Um, I you know if you if you so flashback to 2013, right? Um, New York, New England, uh, even Virginia and DC, um, and you sort of look at you know, the West Coast, whether it's you know California, Washington, Oregon, all these places had pretty vibrant distilling communities, right? Um, most of those places, sort of the wineries and the breweries and distilleries all sort of tracked together, right? So you had wine first, beer second, and then the wave of distilling came through. Maryland was a really unique place and, and a unique opportunity for us in that we were the second distillery to open in 40 years. Um, so it was a really good opportunity because, you know, one, Maryland has this incredible history of being sort of the capital of rye whiskey production. And yeah, I was. I learned that aspect. last uh, Monday, and I yeah. I was completely surprised by that. Cause right, it's I mean, it's such it's a so, small state. Yeah. Like it, 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 you never equate Maryland with a distilling history. Right, you'd, and you'd sort of think of you know Kentucky or something yeah. like that, but Maryland has this incredibly vibrant and and beer, you know, brewing as well. Um, there's that amazing documentary, Brewmore, Baltimore, um, talking about how you know basically what a, what an economic driver. The production of alcohol was for uh, both the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland and, and beyond. But um, so there's incredible history of making rye whiskey in the state. Uh, prohibition, incredible history of rum running. You know, the governor of Maryland at the time refused to enforce any prohibition legislation. So essentially, you know, you had you know these laws on the books. But the state of Maryland was like, well, we're not going to enforce them. So you know, drink up, kids. Yeah, uh, do what you which want. Which was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So it was this fantastic thing, and now, but then, but then, you know, in the late '70s, it was 1978. Pikesville Rye was the last distillery in Baltimore. They were making rye whiskey, uh, owned by a family up there who who's still up there. Um, sold to Heaven Hill in Kentucky, and all the production moved away. And that was the last whiskey distillery to move out. And after that, you know, rye whiskey, bourbon, you know, all that stuff had sort of fallen out of fashion. Vodka, gin were becoming much more popular. Wine obviously had a boom, you know, 80s into the 90s, and then beer began. And so there was just this, you know, sort of two or three decade gap without any distilling. I mean, it went from being, you know, capital of this kind of production and industry to, to absolutely nothing. I mean, Seagram's had a major plant there. Um, really, I mean, it was, it was a major, major industry, and then it just vanished overnight, which I think is a similar story, you know, across lots of industries, you know, especially yeah. on the eastern seaboard. But it made for a cool place for us to sort of come back, plan ourselves, and then of course being on the Eastern Shore was unique because there isn't, there never really was any distilling industry out there, and so we get to both 
you know, sort of piggyback on the interesting heritage in Maryland, but then create something new um, in the place where we are. So that's fun for me. Were you already in St. Michael's or is that <clears throat> yeah, you just picked so, that out of that? That's right, where you thought so, a, a distillery <laughs> so, would be good to open. Exactly. So St. Michael's is also a funny story because I had always envisioned, you know, putting a distillery in sort of a cool barn somewhere in New Hampshire, you know, close to where I grew up, but was in St. Michael's, um, you know, for I was supposed to only be six months was going to, you know, sail, race the season, and then kind of head back to New York, right? It was sort of a, you know, just fun for the summer, um, and then was going to leave. But it turns out one of the gentlemen in town who owns a lot of property and who I also, you know, sail with and often against um, sort of sat me down one one night, you know, after living there for about a month, and, you know, we got hammered. We were drinking <laughs> rum, no surprise. And he basically said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, you know, what am I own distillery? And he said, well, I've got the perfect building for that. Let's go see it tomorrow. And we did. And so, again, you kind of, you know, I think for people who are creative and driven and have ideas they want to do, you know, if, if you always did the things that you said you'd do when you were drunk, <laughs> you know, it'd be a really, really interesting story. So. Uh, I, I think um, <clears throat> I'll have to go back and listen, but right. Justin Bonner from Jailbreak's story is semi-similar. There they, you go. They were talking about him and Casey, his partner, were talking about starting the brewery and – they decided they were going to, right. and that Monday he went in and quit, and, That's so funny. and then told Casey, go. and Casey was like, "No, I was thinking like months." Not, right. He's like, right. "Well, I gave him my two week notice. I'm ready to." And I think, and and this is also something that I always tell everybody, and this sort of speaks more to sort of the entrepreneurial thing, but also the importance. You know, when you're when you're doing something like brewing, winemaking, distilling, um, you know, at a certain point you got to start, right? you got to dive in. you got to get moving. You know, I meet new distillers or people who are thinking about opening distilleries all the time who they've been working on a business plan for two years, three years, five years. Like, what the hell have you been doing? You know? <laughs> and, and the other thing is you can dream up all the numbers that you want to make, you know, help yourself sleep well at night, right? But until you Is start, it, you have no idea. Exactly. <laughs> it's not based in any reality. I mean, it's, you know, it's all hypothetical. Until you start, until you get moving, until you take that first step, you know, you make your first bottle, you do whatever you have to do, you don't know. And also, there's, there's no motivator, like the fear of failure once, you know, lights are on and you've got to feed the beast and you've got to make the stuff. And yeah. you've got to, <laughs> got, you know, you, there has to be some cash flow, right, at a certain point, depending on you know, your model. Um, for us, I mean, we, you know, boot, you know, Jamie and I bootstrapped the whole thing, um, had no investors. Uh, we started with a really, really tiny budget, um, started as literally one of the absolute smallest distilleries in the country. And we were also hyper efficient and it was partially, you know, the financial aspect of it, but it was also kind of our nature. And, um, but, but there's nothing motivating, like knowing that you have to be moving right you can't just you know sit on your laurels you can't just sit there and and think about it and you know dream you know about what could be because what can be won't be if you don't actually yeah. get your ass moving <laughs> right so so in 2013 were there mm-hmm. I mean, my experience with uh craft spirits goes back a whopping 10 months maybe okay um so this is good <laughs> in 2013 were there a lot of were there other craft distilleries from other states that were, were on the market and popular or yeah, so were you, you bringing a fairly new idea to this area 
Um, if you go back to 2013, <clears throat> there were about 200 to 250 distilleries active in the country, um, whole country. Today, um, I believe for active licenses, there are like 1,200. And by the end of next year, I think we're projected to have like 2,000, something wow. like that. And if you actually look at the graphs where you, know, you chart the, the growth of the brewing industry and the growth of the distilling industry, those, those lines are almost identical, but distillery you know, growth is just slightly faster. Um, it's re- really interesting. And then it's also particularly interesting right now. We're sort of um, dealing with a whole bunch of things with excise tax reform and some other stuff that really hasn't changed. Uh, you know, and, this, and we're talking federal legislation that hasn't changed since prohibition. And it's just now because literally in the past four years, there's been kind of this unprecedented explosion um, yeah. in this industry. So it's, it's, it's a cool time. Um, we're really in the infancy, which is such a weird thing to me because, it, you know, after four years in it, and having you know worked for another distillery literally twelve years ago, um, to still be like all right, you know this is just this is the very beginning of something awesome, um, is such a wild thing because we're so deep into it too at the same time. Yeah, I the taxes and the reporting and things like I thought breweries had mm-hmm. ridiculous amounts of reports oh, and man. things they had to do until um i started meeting and talking to distillery owners yeah and then they talked about what the oh, reporting God. and the uh the samples the send and oh, it's, just I mean, it's how crazy. I mean, you you literally have to track every drop i mean it's you know every distillation every t- you know basically every time you turn on the still every ingredient you use every bottle you make every sample you give out i mean every drop is it literally is tracked and that's and that's something that uh is is definitely a burden um and especially for people who've never worked in the industry before you know you start out of the gate and you look at the federal reporting forms that you have to do every single month and it just boggles your mind um that was and god i hate paperwork i really do (laughs) um Bless Jamie's heart. I mean, she, you know, she does all that stuff now. Um, for the first couple of years, I mean, I, I still did all that. Um, and that was my my monthly drudgery. Um, <laughs> I I despise paperwork. I don't really, I mean, yeah, that, that's literally my least favorite thing. Um, but, it, but it is an absolute essential. Um, you know, because you're making, and it's, and it's not unreasonable, right? We're making a legal, addictive, intoxicating substance. Yeah. So it's like, eh, all right, you know, it's... It's onerous, but probably a good thing. Well, one, ultimately. <laughs> um, one thing I had never thought of, and it was when I was taking um, McClintock's distilling class last week, yeah. was why it's illegal to distill spirits at home. And I just thought maybe it had to do with the, like, because you're making such stronger alcohol, they don't want you doing that. And But then there's the whole, like, if you drink the the heads yes. you're, you can get sick from that but then right. uh tyler had brought up the point like you know if you if you're home brewing and things go horribly wrong you're just gonna make a bad product if you're making yes. wine you're gonna make a bad product if you're distilling and you're creating just a bunch of alcohol vapor and then there's a spark or something right. you're blowing up your house exactly so i was like oh it's all, it's all that makes things. a little more sense of why it's not legal now exactly I think you have the, the aspect of you know the beginning of the run, yeah, the concentrated methanol, right? You can you can poison somebody to death. You know the, the legends about moonshiners going blind, literally derived from the fact that uh, you know at, at certain points, I think some of these guys are out 
you know, they're making booze. They're, you know, first little bit starts to come off the still, and it smells kind of sweet. It's not, you know, it doesn't taste bad. I mean, it actually tastes, I mean, it's, it's, you know, astringent, but it doesn't taste Dangerous. entirely unpleasant, yeah. right? So, you, you know, you drink that. And do that enough times, one of the primary side effects of methanol poisoning is temporary blindness. <laughs> so this is not this is not the kind of thing we want, we yeah. want to have happen. You also can't light beer on fire. Pretty easy to light your raw spirits yeah. on fire. You know, it's just it's all this stuff, you know, and um, I sort of understand it. But but the the sad part of that is pre-prohibition, we had this unbelievable distilling culture in this country. You know, when I mean, you think about the the fabric of of America, right? What makes us who we are? Well, it's immigrants from everywhere. So you had you know Germans, you had Russians, you had Italians, you know, the Spanish populations. You know, you had so you had brandies, whiskeys, you know, beer schnapps from Germany. You had all these incredible products being made. You had you know sort of your classic American varieties of whiskey. Um, all this stuff happening. And then because of Prohibition, it just vanished. It's um, died off completely. Died off, went away. I mean, it, <clears throat> um, and so it's, it's, it's an unfortunate story because also that meant all that knowledge really went out the window. Um, brewing and winemaking obviously continued on. Um, and because it is legal to do at home, you sort of had this continual sort of democratization Well, home brewing was illegal for a long time too. Right. I can't remember. I, I used to know like it would – it, it wasn't. It really hasn't been legal for that that long of a time. I guess that's true. Well, and, it, but it was. I think it was then, also state by state. Maybe? Yeah. Well, then it was, I think it was federally illegal for a while, and then I want to say Eisenhower is the president oh, wow. that legalized okay. it. Right. And then up until only a few years ago, there were still a few states that it was illegal to. I think okay. at, at this point now, it's le- it's legal to in every state. Gotcha. Yeah. But it was, I mean, but but again, it's one of those things where yeah. the moral of the story is that our alcohol laws in this country yeah. are, are just crazy sometimes. And it's, but it's also about how does that knowledge get passed down, right? Yeah, you know, when you know, when pre, you know, basically pre '80s, the only distilleries in this country were massive industrial operations. It's not like somebody's going to go home and replicate that, right? You know, but but you know, somebody can go stomp on some grapes in their backyard, or you know. Cook them some grain in a kettle, you know, in the barn. And, and So how I, – I, was it triple – what was the name of the one you worked at? Triple uh, Eight Distilling. How how, um, how large was that distillery? Uh, that's tough to say. I mean, it's small by, okay. any, by any scale. Um, so the reach like, now is much greater. They've and, – and they've gone on to very illustrious things. I mean, they've they've won – I guess it was last year they won Best Single Malt in the world. Oh, wow. Literally. Um, Consistently, they win Best Single Malt in America, uh, so they 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 have done some incredible stuff. Well, I saw but, um, your whiskey was listed as the number one whiskey in uh, Maryland by yes. Esquire magazine. Yes, which was very cool. Although they got um, the date was, of you opening wrong, right? Of course, <laughs> bless their hearts, oh, Esquire. But yeah, no, that was that was great, um, and that was that was a really yeah. I mean, that was a proud moment for us. Um, obviously, we work really hard. I, I feel, you know, I mean, when you're in this business, I mean, you feel a definite connection and a passion and a drive to, to make the best thing you can. And so it's nice is, when you get recognition like that. Is there a statewide competition like the um, Comptroller's Cup for beer and no. I think also for wine? So they haven't started we, that we for. We haven't started that yet, um, which is also interesting because two years ago, I don't know, there were four or five of us 
and next to none. You know, I mean, really nothing. It's rapidly growing. And now you've got, I think by the end of, or beginning of next year, you'll have close to 20 operational distilleries in Maryland. And I would say like 99.9% of you are making a really good product. Which, which is great, you know, and, th- and that's, I mean, that's what counts. You know, you, you hope that everybody will make good stuff. I mean, I, I think it's fortunate that we've sort of gotten past the, the moonshiners <laughs> phase on TV where it was, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and make the best, most authentic it, the first, moonshine. The first and, season of that show was amazing. Right. And then it turned into every other reality type TV show. Exactly, and I think you know because the sheriff's department's got <laughs> yeah. tired of the production crews making fun, of, making them look stupid. Yeah. You know? So it's, any shred of authenticity just went out the window. Um, but it also turns out, you know, it's. Um, I think a lot of people just don't really like you know just raw white corn liquor all that much. So it's like, whoa, this isn't going to last forever, guys. So this I was at. One of my cousin's weddings, mm-hmm. and she was marrying um, a guy who grew up in West Virginia, right. whose family brought authentic West Virginia moonshine to it. It was oh, the most pain. I didn't like. I didn't even drink <laughs> the moonshine. It's bad. I man. I attempted uh-huh. to eat a cherry <laughs> that yeah. had been soaking in it, and it was I. It may have just been gasoline. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> And you have no idea. I mean, some of those guys clearly they know what they're doing. They're making good, being a relative term, good stuff. I don't think this um, person did. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then you have the people who just they've got this recipe and it may be the most god awful nonsense in the world, but that's the way they make it. Yeah. And there's almost because it's a little on, bit of pride in how yeah. painful it is to stomach this stuff. So because it's in a mason jar oh. with a some masking tape on yeah. it that says Applejack or it's whatever. Like, just because we've always done it this way doesn't yeah. necessarily mean we should. <laughs> like, you know. Uh, so what did you bring with you today? So today I brought our two classics. Um, the white rum, which is what everything starts as, and then the dark rum, which is sort of my original kind of uh, recipe, I guess you could say, um, after this. And so... Um, all of it, I think, and I think the cool thing about our rums is that they all start really as this. Um, the base for this is half turbinado sugar, half blackstrap molasses. Um, we get it all from this old family sugar mill um, down in New, uh, about an hour west of New Orleans. Um, Lula Westfield is the company. We actually, we actually just took a company field trip down there a month ago to actually get into the fields and in the sugar mill for oh, the cool. sugarcane harvest um, and see how everything was made. Um, which was wild. And so um, this is what everything starts as. It's it's really um, – I'm really proud of of this because, one, we – the way I make this, uh, we use pot stills. I don't know if you're too familiar with that, but it's sort of a very classic method yeah, of distillation. Yeah, it's the, like, yeah, circle one with the up and go. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a lower It's not proof. the big columns. and the... Exactly. So it's a lower-proof distillation. It's a lot less efficient. Um but I would argue that you get the best flavor profile from it. Um, and, of course, that's up for debate. And I know um, you know there are a lot of guys out there who will, who will dispute that. But be that as it may, that's how we do it. Um, it gives us a really interesting profile. The characteristic that you get from just our base white rum is no matter what product it is. Whereas I mean, we've got 15 of them now. 
um, but whether it's our orange curacao or the coffee rum or our aged rums, um, the characteristics that you get in this are sort of the common thread that, that ties all of it together. And this is, uh, you know, yeah, it's just, it's something I'm really proud of. I mean, I think, you know, it's not easy to make a really good white rum that, that, you know, kind of, um, has some heart and some soul. A lot of white rums are just kind of, you know, I mean, you think of, you know, Bacardi or Captain Morgan and it's like light and, you know, kind of sweet, but ultimately it doesn't really taste like much. Might as well be yeah. kind of a, a, you know, a molasses based vodka. Um, this is full of character. It's, you know, got raw grassy cane notes, some molasses sort of characteristic comes through in the finish. It's just, it's neat stuff. And then the dark rum, um, a simple rendition on this. I basically take that raw cane sugar that we've used in the fermentations, cook that into a caramel, and add that back to it. And okay. there are two parts to this one. One, it's uh, obviously caramel is is kind of a natural complement to rum, right? I mean, it's all you know, sugar cane based essentially. Um, and because I'm using the raw cane sugar for the fermentations, you know, in the caramel, it's sort of a profile that isn't kind of tacked on. It's something that's already inherently part of the spirit. But the other thing that not so many people know about rum is that you can add up to 2.5% by volume of what the TTB says is harmless coloring or flavoring to your rum. And in rum, that's classified as caramel. So lots of, almost every aged rum out there has caramel added to it, whether for color or flavor or both. Okay. And so it's a profile we've gotten so used to in our commonly <coughs> available aged rums that it's tough to discern now. And so in our aged rum, we don't add anything to it. So this provides a nice contrast where you say, all right, I've got the white rum, got the dark rum that's been modified a little bit with that caramel, and people will drink this. I'm like, how long was this aged? And when I tell them net, not even a day, um, they're baffled, and it's but it's because that caramel profile is something we've become so used to. Um, so it's a it's a neat product. Cool. Yeah, really versatile. Makes awesome. Uh, I guess I can't say uh, you know the the real name for it. We're dark, you know, rum and ginger beer. Uh, very popular cocktail. We we want to avoid uh, potential legal issues with um, the Goslings Corporation, but uh, you know, <laughs> trademarked. The dark and apostrophe stormy cocktail, but um, so, but I would say rum and ginger beer is a fabulous drink. So, um, and this makes a particularly good one. So, uh, yeah. But do you want to try some of this? Absolutely. Yeah. We're here to yeah. Let's try. Sample right. Which um, which glass do you want to use? You pick whichever one you want. Little wine glasses. We've we've got a uh, should be pretty good. A large assortment for almost everything the Frederick News Post does. Okay, so we'll do. We'll do a little white rum first. So we'll start you with that. Let's see what you think. Both of these are 90 proof, so you're going to get you know pretty, pretty similar kick from either one. But um, but so in that one, you're you're looking for kind of a raw, literally a raw grassy sort of um, distinct cane note. You know you'll you'll sip it, and I think one of the things that you notice primarily is that after you sip this, the profile doesn't just vanish from your palate. You know, it still lingers there. And that's from the oils and proteins that are present in the distillate because of our use of, uh, of pot stills. It's really smooth. Yeah. And that's that's just the result of, of careful distillation, really. I, lo- I love how different types of spirits kind of like the heat just moves around oh, and yeah. tingles. And like Absolutely. this one kind of like 
coat your tongue a little bit, then goes up on the roof of your mouth, yep. and then, then there's an ending tingle in your nose. Exactly. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> and that and that was kind of the idea. And this was also, you know, making a, making a good white rum is tough. Um, you know, because for me, you know, my inclination is to is to sort of appease kind of the, you know, the real rummies out there, right? The people who are really passionate about it. But, you know, you also want to make a spirit that, you know, kind of the average person can at least approach. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, we're not trying to do, you know, something crazy so like me. absinthe or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want it, but, you know, you want it to be simultaneously approachable, but have, you know, some depth and character to it. Well, the, they're... Know? It's not, it's not supposed to be, you know, and I think one of the, you know, one of the conversations I had with one of my best friends early on when I was struggling with how, you know, funky or how clean to make it, he said, well, it's not, it's not, you know, sort of sugarcane based vodka. It's supposed to taste like rum. Um, and having white rum taste like real rum is, is something that at least in this country, because we've been so used to sort of, you know, the spring breakification of, of this spirit, we haven't gotten so much of, so. So with that one, though, there, there even seems to, and maybe I'm completely wrong because I don't know how to articulate how things yeah. taste, um, but it, it almost has like what a taste that I would typically equate to being aged, like, yes. a, like a woody taste there's, to and, it. And, there's, and I, would, I would describe that as kind of a maturity of the spirit. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm not completely no, wrong. No, you're, you're, you're on the mark there. That. I'm a and professional now. You are. You're, you have a sophisticated palate. You're well versed in spirits after ten whole months of delving yeah. into this wild world. Um, yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. And and but I think and that's and that's one of those characteristics in a spirit that's definitely apparent when you come across you know your your better distillers, better distilleries, you know, and and, and ultimately better products. Where even the base raw white spirit has a delicacy, a character, and, and kind of a so is know, the a drinkability about it that, that it doesn't, you know, it's not it's not going to peel the paint off the wall. It's something you can actually sip. The only difference between those is the caramel added back in? Correct. Or, yep. <clears throat> and at what point of the process is that done? After distillation. Okay. So basically, so basically you, you end up with your raw white spirit. And um, sweeten it up. Kind and so, of. and then this, and then that one, you know, this obviously to bring it down to bottle strength, the raw spirit's at about 150 proof off the still. Add a little water to it, bring it down to ninety proof. Um, but then for this one, it's just you know the caramel added to it, and that's it. It's really it's a really simple process. It changes the aroma tremendously. Oh, tremendously, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a total evolution of of that product by just adding that tiny little bit of caramel to it. And way smoother. Mm-hmm. I mean, that one was smooth, but this yep. is and almost so all of about... almost all the tingling is gone. Yes. There there's just a little tiny exactly. bit across the tongue. Yeah. It doesn't have the heat going down your Precisely. throat or into your nose. And and part of that is the sugar. So the reason and vodkas often have little trace amounts of sugar added to them just to kind of mellow it out. Sort of fools your palate a little bit, makes you think that it's a little bit lower octane than it actually I is. I think this is the first um, type of alcohol. Now, most I've tried are beers, and I'm mm-hmm. excluding ones that just have extract added into them. Right, that right. But I think this is one of the first times I've ever where someone has described the taste of caramel to me. Yeah. Where like I try it, and I'm like, well, that tastes like caramel. And it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Like most of the time, it's like, well, I guess if you make a stretch, that kind of <laughs> right. tastes like caramel. Yeah. But like you, this tastes like you could literally have like a caramel chew and in your mouth. At and the, that's it. You know, and I, it was funny early on, I told uh, another fellow distiller that, you know, I was, I was making it 
this way. And he said, oh, well, where do you get your drums of caramel from? I was like, and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, the, the, the caramel that you buy. Was, uh, we, we Literally, I, I make it. Like, this is, I, I, I was confused for a second. He's like, you know, the, the stuff that, you know, it comes in the drum. And I was like, no, 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 that's not how we do things. Um, and then something else that we're, that we're, you know, we take a lot of pride in is that every ingredient, everything that we add to our spirits is something that, that starts out as sort of like the raw item, whether it's, you know, the orange peels that get infused in the curacao to, um, you know, the sugar and the molasses that go, in, you know, into the fermentations, whatever it might be. It's all kind of the raw, the raw, pure um, ingredient, and if not organic, incredibly high quality. Um, and that's something that, that's important to us. Let's take a real quick break to sure. uh, thank uh, the Roast House Pub for supporting the Uncat Podcast and tell you about the event they're having that I'm absolutely the most excited about. On December 12th, they're having an Old Mother Beer Dinner, which will be featuring a beer that I collaborated with Old Mother on to make called Bandwagon IPA, <clears throat> which I had a sneak peek of it on Saturday. And um, thank God it is really good because <laughs> I, I, as well as other people, were quite nervous for how much we've been Stakes promoting it, on this, that, yeah. <laughs> that it was that it turned out really well. Um, and Nico of the Roast House Pub has an amazing menu lined up for it that that includes goat stew um, and a, a bunch of words I can't pronounce because he finds the craziest foods to use, but it just tastes amazing. So go to roasthousepub.com and get, I'm pretty sure there are still tickets available for the beer dinner. Nice. You will not be disappointed. And as always, uh, check out their website or the digital pour app to check what they have on tap. And thank you once again to the Roast House Pub for your support. And so they brew their own stuff. No, Old Mother does. Old Mother. Uh, okay, so cool. Roast House Pub's nice. a 20 tap <clears throat> uh, pub right outside of downtown. Great nice. place. Amazing food. All right. So you should, if you're going to eat there dinner you before you go home, hit yeah. them up. Excellent. All right. <clears throat> so are, is, is rum the first product you created? Yes. So rum was first. Um, maybe f- three months after opening, we started getting into the whiskeys. Um, corn whiskey was first. And then we did the first rye that was made in Maryland in over, gosh, I think it was over four decades. That's awesome. Um, that was that was wild, um, because it, you know to me it was kind of one I, lo- I love rye whiskey. You know, I sort of I don't know how much rye you've had the pleasure of drinking, but I sort of always tell everybody rye is a more interesting bourbon. You know, it's basically the the corn and the rye that go into that go into bourbon. Sort of like you reserve, reverse the quantities of that in in that mash it, bill. So I I love rye. Yeah. Like rye bread, rye everything. Exactly. Like rye beers, I love them. I love rye beer. Um, yeah. and I think the first like aged rye I had was mm-hmm. McClintock's, and it's nice. It's been in the barrel for a year. Yep. And they don't consider it done yet, but it was yeah. so good. Oh yeah. Um. And right now, I have a two-liter barrel of rye whiskey aging in my basement. That's great. So we'll see how that turns Excellent. out. Excellent. Yeah, check it. Check it frequently. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had two-liter. Um, it changes rapidly. So yeah. <clears throat> I had a three-liter that mm. I was making bourbon in, and oh, I awesome. tried that every once in a And you're right. It it's amazing how months, quickly it's you know completely changes all that surface area exposure. But in in the um, rye whiskey distilling class I took, they yeah. they did. Um, like a vertical flight of oh, cool. of their whiskey at aged nine days, aged 
think three weeks. Okay. Then f- and I couldn't believe just how much of a difference three weeks made. Oh, it's wild. And, it's wild. And I think they, I think these were from thirty gallon barrels. Okay. Um. Then five months, and then to the one year yep. to show you the differences. And oh yeah. Then he used all these sciencey words and right. explained the molecular Science differences stuff, that right. were that were taking place. It's magic. <laughs> it's all magic. But but it, but it is interesting. You, you sort of you know. I think one of the most intriguing parts of that whole barrel aging process is just how fast the aromatics come out. After one month in the barrel, you know, you open it up and you, and you take a whiff and think, oh, my God, we, we got something going on here. And then, of course, you taste it and what you've gotten on the nose is, is not even remotely present on your palate. Yeah. But, but it is really cool because you open it up and, and you just take a little whiff and it's that's, – that's whiskey. Yeah, I – um... I didn't realize how complicated barrel aging was, like how like all the yeah. factors that come into play and just right. And it's uh, barrel aging is it's one not of those just things. dumping some stuff in a barrel and walking away for. But in a way, you. it is. In a way, it is, and that's I th- to me that's the most interesting, at least in terms of American whiskey, right? So we're always required to use a brand new charred oak barrel every time for every whiskey. Which gives you this really uniform, I mean, you know, so you taste bourbon, right? We kind of know what that's like. It's, it's sort of sweet. It's vanilla-y. You've got some sort of spice notes there. And if you age, you know, corn whiskey, malt whiskey, wheat whiskey, you know, classic bourbon mash bill, you know, you sort of, you really always get that profile out of it. And, of course, you can change char levels and toast and, and all these things in the barrel. But that profile is is just so prevalent and you can't you know and, and what i tell people too is when you're when you're thinking about aging what what happens in that barrel um and how much kind of what the distiller did impacts the final product if you do a mass spec analysis on whiskey that's been aged for two years or longer what you realize in terms of the, the you know compounds we can perceive on our palates really 70 to 80 percent of the entire profile comes not from, you know, your special limestone filtered water, God bless you, Kentucky, um, <laughs> grandpa's old mash bill, uh, your secret yeast strain, you know, whatever. It's it's just from the oak. 70 to 80% of it, just the oak. All that hard work you did in the distillery, eh, it's like 20% of that, really. It kind of counts, you know. But, <laughs> but other than that, it's like, you know, you almost, you can almost screw up gratuitously and have this amazing product that comes out in the end. Um and and that's what I tell everybody too. When you're when you're looking at you know whiskey brands and how things are made, uh, my friend Colin Spellman, who is the one of the founders and master distiller at Kings County Distilling up in Brooklyn, um, written a, a couple of phenomenal books. I'll plug him right now. Um, the Urban Guide to Moonshining was his first book, and talked about how you know his distillery got started, his background in it. Um, but then in that book, he's got this incredible. You know, sort of the whiskey tree, right? So, the the you know main big brands of whiskey in this country, you know Buffalo Trace, etc. And of those distilleries, you know where does their their literally their, their oh I've raw seen juice. that yes. So it has like the trunk, the tree, and then it and goes it into the you, branches to show the exact exactly the, all the yeah. you know essentially all the you know the super premium brand is you know like you know old granddad at the beginning you know yeah. right and it's uh, and it's just funny because you realize. All this stuff really starts is almost the same stuff, and it's just 
how long or you know what barrels they picked or whatever but, but really it's all the same juice at the end of the day and it's just that that aging process you know and how that how that differs that that really makes it super premium or not so premium and and a lot of times there's you know you sort of get a clear idea of that point of diminishing returns in terms of how much to spend on your on your booze too so so you had said um by the barrels you pick is, yeah. so is there a wide spectrum of quality of oh, barrels man. and how are, how do you tell that's the cool thing um you know, we, we tightly control every variable in the distillery, you know, fermentation, mashing, you know, our temperatures, you know, how we, you know, when we're making our cuts off the still, but with the barrels, you know, you know, Buffalo Trace did a cool experiment, you know, eight or 10 years ago where they took staves from, you know, cut from oak trees, half of them cut from the top, half of them cut from the bottom, had them, you know, coopered into barrels and then aged whiskey in them and unanimously everybody preferred the barrels that came from the bottom of the tree. And the reason was at the bottom of the tree in those oak staves, higher wood sugar content. So it made the whiskey okay. a little bit sweeter, unequivocally the preferred method. But, but obviously I, people are going to be using the top of the tree when you can't go also. to your Cooper and say, you know, they, <clears throat> you know, if I went to my Cooper and said, Hey, I, I only want staves cut from the bottom of the tree. They'd be like, yeah, yeah <laughs> shove off. Right. Um, and so you don't get to do that. So in these barrels, I mean, you know, every barrel could be made of like 30 or 20 or 30 different trees, right? So you don't know. So it's that one last, it, it's the last variable, but it's also almost the most important one. And it's one we have the least control over, which it's is so be weird. Kind it's of like maddening. it's completely counterintuitive, right? <laughs> and so you can have your Cooper toast things differently, char them differently, but every barrel gives you a, a slightly different profile. So like to, for me, uh, over the last week, I've been tasting a bunch of, for our next batch of rye whiskey, I've been going through all these barrels that we have socked away and literally picking, you know, one, which ones are ready. And even barrels that were, you know, filled on the same day are in dramatically different places in terms of their, their aging cycle. Um, part of it is where in the distillery are they, you know, temperature plays a huge, a huge role and, in the speed of, you know, of the aging process, but it's all also what trees were, was that barrel literally made from? Um, and unfortunately we can't go through and, you know, in any kind of practical way, you know, take a yes. sample of the wood <laughs> and test it and all that stuff. So, um, but a big part of the job is, you know, sort of discerning, you know, one barrel to the next because they are all a little bit different. And occasionally you find these single barrels that are just magnificent. Um, I have one particular rum barrel that was one of the first, was one of the first barrels we ever bought. And it is just outrageously good. Um, everything that comes out of that barrel is just magic. Um, and can I explain why? Well, no, um, not, a, not <laughs> exactly, not with any kind of, uh, specificity, but, um, but everything that comes out of that barrel is incredible. So how many times can you reuse a rum barrel? Um, you know, sort of endlessly. I mean, with the, with each use, it gets a little more neutral because you're stripping some tannins yeah. and wood sugars and all that stuff out of it. But the other cool thing about the barreling is that the profile over time starts to evolve. So lignin is the chemical that holds all those you know wood fibers together, right? The alcohol starts to over time break that down in kind of a gradual way, and that chemical lignin is converted into the chemical vanillin which literally smells and tastes like vanilla. So the Caribbean rum distillers are notorious 
for using barrels, you know, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. To get that. Literally. All the way down to that vanilla taste. Exactly. Because, you know, it's not that the, the barrel becomes unusable. It's just what you get out of it changes. And so they're blending portions of really old barrels with newer ones and, and to get the profile that, that they want. Um, and the other the other little profile, and this is found in very old, I mean, especially um, cognac and Armagnac barrels. So Armagnac and cognac, uh, partially due to the climate um, where they're aged, often sit for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And you get a profile called Rancio, which is sort of a kind of, um, I guess you could say sort of a, a spicy, sweet, sherry-like depth to it. Um, not present very often, but but it is a profile that distillers who have access to you know old stuff will you know come in contact with, and it's and it's very desirable. Um, but the bottom line is, over time, the wood is degrading. You're getting different profiles out of it, and and that's a really it's a it's a cool thing. It's it's really interesting. But but American whiskey is one dimensional in a way because we're required to use a new barrel every time. Yeah. So, but it can still be. It can still be a different, called a different type of whiskey if you reuse it, right? Or is it? Yeah, or, but be... you're you're also not limited in terms of how you finish it. So a lot of, um, so you know, Woodford Reserve, a bunch of other distillers are doing you know sort of double oak, um, Balvenie, you know, very popular Scotch whiskey brand, has for years now done you know with their Caribbean cask where it's a Scotch finished in rum barrels, even though, you know, most Scotch whiskey is aged in you know basically half used rum barrels from the Caribbean. Um, finishing in sherry barrels, port barrels, you know, things like that, where um, wine barrels, you're getting all these different profiles. Um, and you're not limited in terms of what finishing you do. But, but rum, like scotch, is classically aged in, in used barrels. Okay. Um, and so both of those spirits, and, and that's one of the things I love about rum and that you know, gives you this incredible diversity in profile, is that you've got all these different barrels that are going into this final product. Um, in our aged rums, we've sort of gone in a different direction where I really try to, we, we use used bourbon barrels. Um, we've got a few rye barrels in there as well, but our, so we're using used whiskey barrels for aging our, our aged rum. And I try to sort of get the desirable stuff out of the barrel that we want, right? So we're taking the edge off the spirit. We're getting a little bit of that vanilla characteristics some sweetness, but we're not aging it so far that you can't tell that there was whiskey in the barrel previously you get a little waft of that and to me it's intriguing and important to to sort of preserve some of that fundamental character there um and you know that the rum was aged in a whiskey barrel but but it's it's become its own its own thing and developed its own character so that's how we do it do you have um some whiskeys that you're keeping in barrels for longer periods of time or do you have a a certain amount of time where you're happy with just most one of or my, two years yeah, or... I mean, mo- so most of our our whiskey is in one, three, and five gallon barrels, which compared to you know most of it is very very small. Yeah. Um, so your aging cycle is anywhere from eight months to maybe two years if you're really on the the long end of the spectrum. Um, we have filled you know some fifteen some some starting to get to be larger size size barrels, which you know will will take longer. Um, if you're over you know, five or ten gallons, you're looking at at least, you know, probably around a couple of years um, okay. before you get something that has the, the characteristics that, that you're looking for. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, all things are created equal. I mean, the small barrels, you have to be much more careful about 
what proof you put the whiskey into the barrel at. You know, I, I you know, I usually, you know, enter our stuff into the barrel at a much lower proof, just so you avoid extracting the really hard edge tannins. It's, you know, you can you can definitely tweak things, and that's and that's also part of the fun and the challenge. You know, oh, if it if it's a higher proof, it'll pull more. Oh, yeah. out of the and it's, and it's the all basically the astringency of the alcohol. Okay, right. So the higher the proof, the more it's you know. Uh, the more stuff it's going to strip out of the barrel, and the, and the more quickly that's going to happen. Um, and not that that's a bad thing. Every distiller has their own their own theories and their own uh, ways of doing it. But but that's kind of um, the stuff you have to take into account when you're using different barrel sizes. So, so it seems so t- that the um, for as spirits go, rum has pretty lax rules yes. for for it to be able to be called rum. Right, and and that is what absolutely fascinates me about rum um yeah i've been a sort of getting back to a little bit my my personal history um i've been a competitive sailor my whole life so i've you know always had buddies who were who were racing in the caribbean and where i really got into the weird rums was these guys are bringing back stuff that we just didn't get imported to the u.s and you know you line up 50 different bourbons and yeah there's of course there's differences right but the general profile is really similar. After you've had, you know, five or six samples, it all starts. If I, if I gave them to you a blind yeah. and said, you know, pick these out, you're like, nah, it kind of all tastes the same. Line up 50 different rums from around the world, and you are just everywhere. People are just free to oh experiment or whatever. It's absolutely incredible. Different barrel types, different. You've got rum agricoles made from fresh-pressed cane juice. You've got... Cane sugar-based rums, molasses rums, different types of stills. Um, it's a, it's just incredible the diversity that you get in this spirit. And that's one of the things that, to me, uh, is so special because it just allows for kind of ultimate creativity. Um, and it just, I think in, in that sense, it also showcases really good distilling because, sure, you know, you can go and make a rum any which way you want to. Is it going to be good? Is it going to be interesting? You yeah. Know, where, you know where where what's that profile going to be, and what have you imparted to that, and and how did you approach it? Um, yeah, I was I, I yeah. was surprised when I found out that Captain Morgan was a real person. I didn't know yes. that he was someone that actually <laughs> right. that he was someone who actually existed. Oh man, yeah. My uh, Captain Morgan. My well, my grandmother's cousin yeah. owned a deep sea salvage company. Right. So he would go hunt for sunken ships. That's awesome. And at a family reunion, he had um, pieces of Captain Morgan's flagship. That's amazing. He had that one, wow. There was a piece of wood that he brought with him with a nail that was still in it, and then his uh, compass. Unbelievable. He had. That's incredible. I, yeah. he, I, I need to have him just like start a podcast and just or just Let record him, just him his, for his treasure hunting stories. Yeah, yeah, like he was on the History Channel once. Oh, they man. they had a little thing about him. Like, and we used to always. Um, take his stories with a grain of salt like like yeah sure okay Uh, and then um one of my cousins after he got out of the military went to work for him and the first time he came back he was like no he's telling the truth (laughs) (laughs) like he would just have these fantastic stories of like being attacked and like just there was always just some crate like there's countries he's no longer allowed in it's great like um plundering the sea well it's kind of because he said like a lot to get like the rights to you'd have to do shady stuff to get the the rights to be able to bring up like he's not allowed through the panama canal he's (laughs) that's amazing wow 
So oh, he's man. he's um he's an very very interesting guy to rum? talk to. Yes, he, well, I mean, he does, but <laughs> he mainly drinks champagne. Anytime you see him, choice. he always has a bottle of champagne. That's excellent. Well, multiple bottles of champagne. And, I, and well, and that's and that's my not so secret secret. I tell, you know, if you if I had to pick one thing to drink, I mean, gotta love my rum. But but if I could only drink one thing, it would be champagne. But. <laughs> And it, I don't it, want anything just, to do with making champagne, so we'll stick. He with looks it, the so, part yeah. too. He's just a like a large, boisterous, like I don't know, like six foot seven, boisterous guy. <laughs> so I, I need to swilling, yeah, you know, sort of plunderer of the sea. That's great. So I, yeah, I need to sit down and just record him telling stories oh, sometime. Man. That's good. So that that I so I thought it was really cool. Captain Morgan yeah. did exist. Yeah. I always assumed he was just like a uh, like. No, uh, it's the camel or something like some made-up figurehead of a. <laughs> I don't know. We'd be happy about. He would necessarily be happy about you know the, the commercial portrayal yeah. of his legacy, but you know, yeah, well, but but that but you know it also kind of you know speaks to the interesting sort of historical context wrapped up in rum, right? I mean, it was you know spirit drunk by pirates and you know Paul Revere and. Uh, you know, it, everywhere in between, and it's something that has really almost no geographic boundary. I mean, it's you know, rum capital of the world in the 1800s was New London, Connecticut. But <laughs> would you ever think that? No, you'd be like, oh, this is a, this is a Caribbean thing, right? I mean, how, why would why would colonial America be cranking out tons of rum? Well, it's and the history is just incredible, and it spans you know so many countries and so many demographics, and I, that's one of the things that I also really love about it. Um, so how do you make yeah. your coffee rum? Because so, that was the one I think I actually think that may be the only one of your products I've had before today, right. and just love it. <laughs> the coffee rum. Uh, we have a guy who who works with us, um, Brett Steigerwald, um, who I'm sure is is probably tuning in. He just had sold shoulder surgery, so we're we're hoping for speedy recovery for him. But he. Um, he came to work for us about a year and a half ago. Um, I had always wanted to do a coffee rum. Coffee spirits in general are made pretty pretty poorly when they're when they're done in, auth- in an authentic way. I mean, it's really easy to go and buy coffee extract, you know, rum, coffee extract, mix it together. Yeah. It's, that, it's that sweet kind of like if you have like a if you have like a vanilla or sorry, not a vanilla, a coffee like milkshake or something that generic coffee yeah. flavor. Well, you get that chemically, yeah, just but it's obviously an it's extract. It's not necessarily yeah. bad, right? But it's it's that generic coffee flavor. So obviously we weren't going to do that because we don't do, you know, we don't do that kind of thing. So I had sort of figured out how to, you know, create, uh, you know, a coffee spirit without all the flaws in it, but really needed somebody to execute on it. And so Brett came to us and he has a, a cool story because he was actually making a coffee liqueur with vodka, um, infusing it on his own. And, and he'd sort of figured out this great recipe. Um, and so it was the perfect kind of marriage of, you know, a product that I'd always wanted to do and, and his know-how. And so we use a couple of different kinds of coffee from our local roaster, uh, Rise Up Coffee. Love those guys. Um, and we use their um, their Costa Rican and a Nicaraguan roast uh, from them. And they, they source all their coffee sustainably and responsibly. Um, and we picked out I, – I wanted to do a single-origin coffee. Um that was something that I thought was really cool. Pick, you know, the single plantation. I really loved it. And then we tried it with both kinds. It was just better that way. So, you know, quality won over, you know, kind of the, the winning Ideal marketing story, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, 
And but so basically, we just infuse coffee um, and one other sort of pseudo secret ingredient into um, into the rum, and you know it does have a little sugar added to it to sort of round out that profile. But um, the challenge with that spirit for us was you know, we started out with a really clear idea of where we wanted to go with it, and that was the tr- the tough part was you know a lot of the stuff we make right we little trial and error. We try to make, you know, we're always constantly evolving and, and tweaking and improving our spirits. But at a certain point, it's like, yeah, you know, this is cool. Like, we're calling it good. And with the coffee rum, we started out with a really clear idea of, of okay, we want it to be this. And until we get there, you know, we're not going to be happy. So it, it, it really took us damn near, uh, I mean, it took it actually a little over half a year to get that recipe right because it's so many different things. It's was it the proportions of mixing proportions, things together? Yeah, and, I mean, or... it's infusion time. It's what proof is the rum at when you start the infusion? What coffee? You know, all these different aspects um, to making what is you know seems like a simple thing, right? It's like oh, we're going to infuse coffee and rum, and there it is, you know, magic. <laughs> um, but it is definitely not that simple. Not even close. Um, it is. I, I also say that it's it you know it's the trickiest thing we've done yet. I mean, truly. Um, that was a tough, tough recipe to get right, but but I think you know I think I think we're we're there. Oh, I really yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. Now and now, of course, we just we just can't mess it up. So it's yeah. is it is that something? Is, is that a hard product to make um, with consistency? Or once you got you know, the recipe down pat, it's yeah. Once you once you get the sticking. recipe set, yeah, it's pretty much it, it's consistent. But you know, it doesn't mean you get to kind of relax. But and that's the other thing. Once. Once the recipe's nailed, it's like, oh God, we now we really can't f it up, you know. Yeah. It's like <laughs> we gotta keep this going, and and ultimately, I think that's the challenge for, you know, especially those of us who started as incredibly small distilleries. Um, as you grow, if you're fortunate enough to have popular products where people love it and they you know, they want more, and um, my propensity as a distiller. And and somebody who's you know I have kind of the, the creative bug every now and then um, you know I kind of I'm really good at doing stuff on the fly and not always the best at methodically recording every blessed thing I do <laughs> so I'm like I'm like this just feels right I'm just making it it's good here we go um, damn how do I do that again <laughs> right and then it's like no oh, uh, f we have to you know recreate this you know to perfection and that's where Brett comes in he's really good at you know documenting all the stuff that that you know goes in and he he's actually a former engineer so he's a perfect methodical mind in the distillery to to make sure we're on point with process but um whereas i kind of want to throw it together and and i'm like we're just gonna make this let's go you know (laughs) i like like to move fast i like to not you know i'm I'm not one for messing around and um i kind of just i'm like yeah i'm gonna put this thing here and with that and we're gonna mix this together and it's gonna be perfect and mostly that works but you do have to recreate it and so if you if you develop these products that people love and become popular you got to keep them going you know you can't perpetually do i mean you could perpetually do one-offs but it begins to be a game where where you know you you do have to focus on consistency um it's not that it has to be exactly you know precise every time because i think you know, in, in nature and, and in sort of, you know, beer or wine or whatever, you know, in wine we celebrate differences year to year, right? I think the same thing is in, in a way true with spirits where you know, there should be variations, right? This is a, a 
albeit modified product, it's somewhat natural. So we should have variations. We should have evolutions in the yeah. thing. But ultimately, that profile. Yeah, if someone falls in love right, with one I mean, of your products, you want to be able to, you know, be deliver the, to them again. And be in the ballpark. And so that's the challenge. Or at least you, make it recognizable. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, big distilleries. The, the biggest job of the master distiller isn't he's not in there, you know, figuring out how to make, you know, make raw whiskey every day. No, that's, that, that work is done. The big job is how does Maker's Mark taste the same year in and year out? You know, it's sort of what, you know, almost that fast food model, which sort of yeah. sucks the romance out of this beautiful little thing we're doing, right? Um, but, you know, you do at a certain point have to have to be consistent. And that's, and I think what, what you discover is, especially when you're, when you're a naturally creative person, you're good at conceptualizing, but then it's, it's execution, right? And, and that's something that has, honestly hasn't been easy for me because um, it's not my natural inclination. Yeah. It's sort of, okay, we hone in on a process, we do it, and then day in and day out, boom, 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 boom. Um, that's, not, that's not where my mind finds itself naturally. But, but, but that, is, that is the real work, and, and it's important. So. so which one of your products is your favorite? Oh boy, that's a tough one. You know, which which child do you like? As somebody who doesn't have children, I don't know. Thank God I don't have to answer that question. But um, <laughs> I'll tell you which one's right, my yeah, favorite. <laughs> okay, so as a parent, you can say <laughs> maybe you have a favorite, maybe you don't. Sorry, kids. Um, but this is my story, not your dad's. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I honestly, I, I just make stuff that I love. Um, and, and that's been our success. Actually, honestly, that's been our success. We don't track trends. We don't do gimmicks. We, you know, and everybody else is like, oh, well, the industry is going this way. We're like, you know, if, you Ben know, likes I, this. Forget that, you know. And <laughs> like Jamie wanted to do rock and rum, so we banged out a rock and rum. We're the, we're the only rock and rum in the country, actually. What's um, that? Rock and rye was a really popular bottled cocktail, sort of early to mid 1900s. It's rye whiskey that literally had rock candy, uh, a few cherries, and a couple pieces of orange shoved into the bottle. And it all kind of meld together. Uh -huh. and it was this lovely, essentially kind of a, a Manhattan in a bottle, really. It was sort of kind of the best way to think of it. But um, in the TTB standards of identity, there's, in addition to rock and rye, there's rock and brandy and rock and rum. Um, but can't find any record of anybody ever making a rock and rum. So we're, we're the first. But that was something she wanted to do. So we did it. Um, Orange Curacao. Uh, you know, most people are like, all right, well, I've seen that really nasty cheap syrupy stuff on the shelf like is there a is there a market for really good orange curacao well yeah, it turns out there is <laughs> um but it's not something where you do the you know you do the market research and be like yeah let's do an orange curacao this is this is where the financial sense is you know but but that's where the cool stuff comes from yeah is doing things that you believe in as a company as a brand as a as a distiller you know what moves you and I think that is the strength of our company, and and ultimately, where all the products that you know I we you know Lion Distilling Company puts on the shelf come from is that we love it, we we believe in it. It's all stuff that I think is awesome. I drink it, you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I drink a lot of our overproof uh, that I finish with toasted French oak. Um, the Sailor's Reserve Rum is the one that you'll see me. I, I race in a historic. Uh, sailing season out on the eastern shore. It's the Chesapeake Bay log canoes. Uh, been, been, we all been you know, these boats have been racing for over a hundred years, and me and my crew will be on there drinking our the Sailor's Reserve. It's our rum <laughs> that we age and use bourbon barrels. Um, <laughs> afterwards, at the yacht club, you know, drinking dark and 
rum and ginger beer. With <laughs> rum and ginger beer with our dark rum and yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's all stuff I love. Obviously, the the rye whiskey is something that was a, a project for me that you know to be the first one in over forty years, uh, a really interesting, historically kind of authentic mash bill. Um, is something that you know for me is just awesome. I, I love it. I love that whiskey. What's um, your favorite Maryland beer? Ooh, God, this is a tough one. I love so many of them. Um, the first one that always is right there in my mind. Um, I just think Burley Oak is awesome. Um, I yeah, love I that those guys are, and they were kind of heavy into nitro before a lot of people were. And I love that you go to the tasting room and it's, you can have it with you know. Regular, you know, just regular CO2, but then you can have the same beer on nitro, and it's just a cool con. I also like contrast in things, and I, yeah, and I just love that you can have that same beer recipe, but with two types of, types of carbonation, and it's just it's dramatically different. Um, the guys at Union Brewing are, are really good buddies of mine, I love them, love everything that they're doing up there in Baltimore. Um, yeah, God, there's so many. I mean, and and that's the cool thing about Maryland too. We've got this amazing, yeah, it's this exploding. amazing, amazing uh, brewing scene with with some really world class stuff. The only uh, thing I dislike yeah. about Burley is how far away they are. That's the thing, but you know, and I but I also like that because and people you know bitch about this with my whiskey all the time. Why can't I go to the store and get it? Well, drive your ass out to the distillery. And come get, you know, <laughs> uh, way back when working for Cisco, it's with their beer. Literally, their motto is nice stuff if you can get it and we kind of have been sort of true to that too and i i like i like the hard stuff to get you know the, the stuff that's tricky I, you know um that's i think it's cool uh if it's and not that it's not cool to be everywhere but but i think it's it's you know when you gotta hunt for something it's kind of kind of, kind of fun so do you pay attention to uh your online reviews at all we do what's oh, yeah. the what's the most ridiculous you've ever received man well, <laughs> Jamie loves this story, um, but so uh, th- and this actually goes way back. We we actually been fortunate. If you look at our reviews, I think they're all they're basically all positive. That's um, I know. I I made the mistake of looking yeah. at McClintock. I didn't look at yours either. I asked McClintock last week what their most ridiculous was. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. They're all good. I, I brought them up. Nothing yeah. but five star reviews. Well, Thank you. so so we do have <laughs> but one. I'm, so I'm glad you have one. Man, you go. Uh, Roll into, you know, Lion Distilling Company on Yelp, and you go way back. There's a review that begins. Well, so we, we visited the distillery on a Saturday, and there was this guy there. We think he may have been one of the owners. And, you know, we were, you know, tasting rums, and we didn't give him any reason to, but we felt like he was judging us. <laughs> we felt like he was judging us. But... The rum was really good, so we bought some anyway. And I was like, <laughs> mm. So basically, I think a long story short is, I don't know, they probably mentioned, you know, Captain Morgan or something, and I probably frowned. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, there was me being the rum Nazi, and you know, <laughs> made them sad. And, oh, well. Um, so I have tried to be not critical of people's you know, drinking funny. habits anymore but <laughs> felt like you know you get, you get somebody talking about how much they love bud light and it's like <sighs> you know, uh, <laughs> just um i you know i'm a little judgy a little judgy i don't know but uh, ultimately though we all gotta drink what we like so hey god bless you and um <laughs> but i was pleased that they were they enjoyed the rum enough to buy some yeah even though i was apparently unpleasant so <laughs> um 
if you folks are out there somewhere, I'm sorry that I judged you and made you feel bad about the things <laughs> you had drunk in college and before. But yeah, oh well. So do, do you um before we wrap up, do you have anything coming up you want to oh, let people know? Gosh, make um, people aware of. Next batch of rye whiskey is coming out in about mm, maybe Saturday. Saturday maybe the big uh, big release day. It could be a couple days earlier. Stay tuned on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We will we will update the release and also our next batch of single malt. So simultaneously, we also do a. I've also been doing a single malt whiskey that's really interesting. I you know I've used uh, a lot of Morris Otter, some Crystal One Twenty biscuit malt, and a six row. So sort of uh, kind of a whiskey that you would almost be think of more as a beer um, and sort of developing complexity in that way. So that's uh, that's the way I've been doing the single malt. You know for couple years now and it's really cool stuff so second batch ever of our age single malt coming out uh in the next few awesome. days be good stuff and then um then we got a couple really exciting things coming up in the new year that i can't talk about yet but um, you can if you want to I can't, go ahead i can't it's a safe space we're, <laughs> we're all friends here <laughs> in a nice little warm circle of not so much anonymity but uh, <laughs> no one's judging here. exactly graham's staring at you right, but i don't exactly. think he's judged. i don't <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so uh, yeah, and the good news is we we do have some some yeah. Twenty eighteen is going to be a big year for us. So I'm really excited. Now you that. you were at the uh, first Frederick Craft Spirit yes, Festival. Yes, that be was at awesome. The, again next year, we will absolutely do it. Awesome, it was an awesome event. Love Frederick for doing it. Um, the number it was of an amazing time out. It was turnout, great. an amazing time for and it was a, a torrential down. Yes. Yeah, people still came out. It was awesome. Um, and that was the day we released our one fifty one, which. Um, also has become surprisingly popular. So that's cool. So, yeah. Cool. So that's that. All right. Well, thank you cool. so much for uh, well, coming for out to Frederick awesome. to hang out. Yeah. Uh, thank, every, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Cheers. All right. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.